Hebrews chapter 4, beloved, please turn in the Word of God to Hebrews chapter 4. We are going through the, the book of Hebrews, and we are still in the fourth chapter. to read from verse 1 and read through to the end of verse 13. We'll be looking at verses 12 and 13 together, but let us commence reading at verse 1 of the chapter. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works." And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, and he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man should fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Amen. May the Lord bless his word to us. May you receive it by faith in your hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help. The prayer we just sang together is challenging but we offer it sincerely and ask, O God, that truly we may be transformed. May the love of Jesus fill me. Oh, God, we are so unlike Him. We're so cranky and we're so petulant and so argumentative and so corrupt. Oh, may we be governed by the love of God and Christ. If we haven't this, we have nothing. Even if we give our bodies to be burned and have not love, we are we're just nothing. It's just empty. So many times what we do, what we say, how we think, it's just empty. There's no 
miraculous love governing our hearts. Make it more to be true of us all. And especially may that love be towards thee, our God. Help us then today to hear your word with profit. Extend your kingdom through its proclamation, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Few preachers in this world have had as much impact on their generation as the Scottish reformer John Knox. He almost single-handedly transformed his nation, pulling it out of paganism, delivering it from Romanism, and establishing institutions and a whole manner of living that was completely transformed from what it had been prior. His use of the Word of God made a dramatic impact. He wanted all of society to be governed by the Word of God and had a view that the Word of God had something to say in every area of life. Now, in our day, many fall foul of taking the Word of God and using it as a means to our own end. We use it to achieve our own selfish objectives. We have a goal in view, and then we try to take the Word of God to get to that objective or that goal. That's not what it's given for. We're not to take it and use it for our own manipulative ends and purposes. We are to take it as it is given and see that the one who spoken, has spoken it is God Himself and be under that authority. Knox, in an effort to help other ministers and brethren understand the importance of the Word of God, said in a letter to them, and I quote, and it's fairly lengthy if you can bear with the sort of long sentences here, but speaking of the Word of God, he said, For as the Word of God is the beginning of spiritual life, without which all flesh is dead in God's presence, and as it is the lantern to our feet, without the brightness whereof all the posterity of Adam does walk in darkness, and as it is the foundation of faith, without which no man understands the good will of God, so it is also the only organ and instrument which God uses to strengthen the weak, to comfort the afflicted, to reduce to mercy by repentance such as have slidden, and finally to preserve and keep the very life of the soul in all assaults and temptations. And therefore, if you desire your knowledge to be increased, your faith to be confirmed, your conscience to be quieted and comforted, or finally your soul to be preserved in life. Let your exercise be frequent in the law of your Lord God. End quote. If you want what he has spoken of here, Give yourself to the Word. We're living in a time where there is a famine. A famine not of bread, but of the Word. Some of it is in a famine of true, faithful preaching of the Word. It can be hard to find. 
but some of it is down to ourselves. We are starving ourselves of the Word. Ask yourself, was there a frequency in your exposure to the Word of God even in the past week? Or did you live in a manner, though you wouldn't say it this way, a manner that would really declare, I can get through each day without hearing from God? It's very dangerous. And so I say at this very point, If there's a neglect of the Word of God in your life, you need to rectify it. You need to do it as a matter of self-preservation and a matter of obedience to your God. You will not profit. You will not prosper. You will not advance. You will not grow You'll not know how to deal with those curveballs that the providence of God brings your way if you're not having your whole heart and mind regulated by the Word. And it is difficult to draw constantly from an old well. We need to be drawing daily from the Word. So this morning, as we look at verses 12 and 13, I've titled my sermon simply, Nothing Compares to God's Word. Nothing compares to God's Word. As far as hearing things, as far as information coming to our hearts, there is nothing like the Word. And you know this. Sweeter than the honey and the honeycomb. That's our attitude toward the Word. There's nothing as sweet or as precious as the Word of God. And this verse, well known to many of you, gives some instruction as to its importance. So consider first then the living nature of God's Word. Verse 12 For the Word of God is quick. It is quick. It is living. Now, just before we proceed, some take the title Word of God, or that language, as a reference to Jesus Christ. And they see it directly pointing to Him. So it's really saying, like, as a synonym, for Jesus is quick and powerful. That's how they understand it. And you'll remember that this book begins with a reference to God who speaks, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. And so you can see then how some would say, well, if God has something to say, it is through Jesus Christ. And of course that's true. But the, the, the instrument that is in view is not the incarnate Word. The instrument here in Hebrews 4.12 is this, the written Word of God. The context of the passage would help you understand that. If you go back to chapter 3, verse 7, where that section really begins with the quotation of Psalm 95, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear His voice, it's hearing from God that is in mind. Chapter 4, verse 1, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise, that's language of, of word, a promise being left us of entering into His rest, any of you should seem to come short of it, for unto us was the gospel preached, not just seen in the incarnate Son, but the Word preached. The Word was preached unto them, but it didn't profit them, and so on. So it's dealing with the Word of God, God speaking to men. 
And the apostle is arguing that the generation in the wilderness did not believe the Word of God. They rejected it. You see it, chapter 4, verse 6, "...seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached, that generation that came out of Egypt and were in the wilderness, first preached, entered not in because of unbelief." This word was preached, a message was preached to them, the gospel was preached to them, but they didn't enter, they didn't obtain, they didn't receive, they didn't possess because of unbelief. Verse 11 as well, let us therefore, uh, let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. We are to push in, we are to believe, we are to trust in this promise and keep on trusting and resting continually. You see, the Lord expects us to take His Word, to believe it, and then keep on believing it, like to not let go. I was reading this and thinking of John chapter 8 when the Lord Jesus, standing there before a crowd of Jews in Jerusalem and preaching the Word of God, it says that many believed on Him. And His response to them is very, in some ways, something we wouldn't really use much, but you see what He's getting at when he says in John 8, 31, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. If you continue. In other words, if your belief continues on, you keep believing, you keep trusting, and your whole life becomes governed by what you say you believe. If it's not that kind of belief, it falls short. But since there was generations that didn't believe, and didn't enter in, and didn't possess, and didn't appropriate the promises. Since so many fell in the wilderness, so many came short, and even David is lamenting about that in his generation, which is, as I've said before, the relevance of Psalm 95. People aren't pressing in. They don't know. They haven't obtained. And since in the first generation, the apostle here, as he's addressing his day, also is the same problem people aren't entering in. They're not obtaining the promise. They're not getting what God is saying to them. Then the question arises, is the fault with the Word? Maybe the reason why those in, in, in Moses' day didn't enter in is because there was a fault with what was said. Maybe the shortcoming in David's generation and all the rife unbelief of his time was because there's a fault in the Word. Maybe that's the same in this first generation as well. There's a problem. There's something amiss in the Word. Well, that's a problem in every generation. And it's part of the reason why we, we tend to take a pragmatic approach to religion and we start doing things in addition to the Word and adding things in because it's, it's not sufficient. It, it's not enough anymore. Maybe our forefathers, they were content with just the Bible, but we need all this other stuff. Well, the apostle argues, no, they don't have this idea that there's some shortcoming in the Word of God. The Word of God is alive. It is alive. The Jews being addressed by this sermon needed to be reminded that God didn't just speak to their fathers. He was speaking to them. He was speaking to them in that moment that it was a living word up to date addressing them and their hearts. Whether it was quoting from 
the time of Moses and the first five books of the Bible, whether it's quoting from Psalm 95 and the day and generation of David, the Word is living. Now, the application there should be obvious. That means when the Word of God is read, when it is declared, it is a living Word. It is speaking in the moment to those that hear it. It is not just some heartening of the past. When God addresses men through His Word, it is right up and fresh in the moment. It couldn't be any more vital or momentous if God Himself came down and uttered it to you by His own person. Now, you would pay attention if that happened. But it's no less living when you hear it read from this pulpit or in your own home. This means we should be very attentive every time we're exposed to it. Carelessness towards someone's words reveals something of our heart towards them, doesn't it? A boss says something and we're careless to what they're saying reveals a lack of respect or, or love or appreciation. Same with parents, children. When parents speak and we don't really care what they have said or our ears don't prick up with immediate response of what are they asking me to do or we imagine that they want me to do it now but I think it would be better to do it later or we are negotiating in our heads what is going on. It communicates something of your heart towards them. And so it is with God. We were jesting a little just before the service in the back there about sleeping, and I was admitting that sometimes I think that God called me to be a preacher to make sure I'd always be awake during worship, (laughs) because it's a lot easier to stay awake when you're on your feet. But it does say something, doesn't it? about us when we, we're going to hear from God and we bring ourselves in a frame in which we are, it's not conducive for us to hear what He is saying. The Word of God is living. It's alive right now here in this place. When it is faithfully read and declared, it is a living Word. The Word of God is alive. A few other things I want you to note here with regard to this, that it is, in, in relation to its living aspect, it is, it is spiritual. It is a spiritual life. In John 6, you remember the feeding of the 5,000 and the day that followed, and that occasion when multitudes were following, and Jesus is saying to eat his flesh and so on. In John six sixty three, Jesus says, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, or makes alive, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The sense is they, they, are in, they, are, they are spiritual, they're like of God. These words that I speak are divine and they are life-giving. And later, when he says, there are some of you that believe not, 
and he's aware of the one that would betray him. Verse 66, many of the disciples go back. Verse 67, Jesus then speaks to the twelve, will ye also go away? Then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. It's like he's taking from the Lord what he has said. The words that you speak are life. They are life. In other words, to, to go away from you is to go into death. And that's what the multitudes were doing. They were stepping away from words of life and walking into spiritual death. The rejection of Christ and His Word was doomed to the soul. The words that He speak are life. Spiritual life. So you come here and you should have that mentality. I'm coming here for life. I'm coming to receive life. I need life. I feel death within my own soul. Sin and its corrupting influences and my nature and I see it all around me and I'm wondering how to cope with this this deteriorating, crumbling world. How do I deal with it as it caves in all around me? I need life. Life. So you come to the Lord to drink from Him, receive from Him life in His Word. It's not only spiritual, it's self-authenticating. It, the Word of God has a certain power in and of itself. It's, its living nature is seen by its self-authenticating quality. In other words, it, it, can, it confirms its own vitality to the soul who rightly receives it. In John 7, 17, Jesus says something very enlightening when he says, if any man will do his, that's God's will, if any man will do God's will, if any man will submit to God's will, if anyone is willing to embrace God's will, if anyone is resigned to obey God and all that he says, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. In other words, your submission to God's word, you say, this is the word of God, I submit to it, will actually cause further understanding of his word. It becomes this illuminating principle that, because people say, well, how do I know if this is God's word? It's, trying to think of, Anselm, people want to understand before they believe. He said, I believe in order to understand. You can't get the comprehension. You don't get it until you first believe. You submit to the authority of God and His Word. And that's, that's a part of what the Lord is dealing with there in John seven seventeen. He's saying if, if, if you take God's will and you want God's will and you submit to God's will and you desire to obey it, then you will know when He is speaking to you. You will know when He is communing with you. You'll understand then that the rest of his commands, all that is in this, makes sense. You you see this played out in the Christian church, don't you? Jews want to do God's will. No, they don't. Unbelieving Jews don't want to do God's will. They reject. You say they accept the Old Testament. No, they don't. They They reject the Old Testament. This is the point that Jesus made. They reject the Old Testament. If if you really believe Moses, you'd believe me. It was the rejection of the Old Testament that actually further blinded them so that they couldn't 
hear or see or understand their Christ. It was unbelief. But the ones who actually had a submission to the Old Testament, who loved the Old Testament, who prized it as the will of, will of God for their lives, then when, when the, the Son of God is revealed, it's like, of course! It made perfect sense to them. They could see it. They were illuminated. Calvin says, if we are prepared to obey God, He will never fail to illuminate us by the light of His Spirit. So the word is self-authenticating. You take it, you obey it, and it illuminates your heart to more of it. That's a certain power that shows that it's living. It is also sure. It is sure. As a living word, it is a sure word. A certain word. Sometimes laws in a country fall out of favor or are no longer enforced. Technically, they still apply. They're on the books, but the civil government doesn't do anything to enforce them. There's an example of this in Detroit. Did did you know that it's illegal to destroy a radio in Detroit? Like you're breaking the law if you took a radio and you destroyed it. It's illegal. You think, well, that's so odd. Like, why would that be illegal? And I don't know all the reasons. I'm assuming it was a time when radios were the only means of communication and they actually were a life-saving device. So if news had to be propagated to the people, that was the only way, or at least one of the major ways of getting that news disseminated. So if you were destroying a radio, you were destroying something that could actually save someone's life. If the government says, we're being invaded by foreign armies or whatever. But I can't imagine there'd be many people in the last year or five or ten who have been arrested for destroying a radio. I don't imagine that that has happened. It's not enforced. It's not relevant anymore. But that is not true of God's Word. It never falls out of favor. It never becomes irrelevant. It's always relevant. All of it. Numbers 23, 19, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? We're not dealing with ordinary man here when we're dealing with the word of God. Psalm 119, 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We're dealing in a different realm when we're dealing with the word of God. It is sure. It's part of its living nature. It doesn't matter how much time passes, how much culture changes, how much the borders of nations shift and alter. The word of God continues living and relevant to every generation. Zechariah 1, verse 5, we read, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? They returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. Men pass away, but the word remains. So, these are certain things that we understand of this living aspect of the Word. 
It is quick. It is alive. Secondly, the powerful force of God's Word. The powerful force, not only the living nature of God's Word, but the powerful force of God's Word. The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Note a couple of things here. First, how it is described and then what it does. How it's described and what it does. How is it described? Well, it's described here as powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We're learning Isaiah 55 in memory, a part of our memory work for this year. And verse 11 tells us, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In other words, my word will do what it was sent to do. That's how powerful it is. It can't be resisted. It can't be hindered. It can't be stopped. It can't be curtailed. His word is powerful. It will prosper. It will accomplish that which God pleases. You read Psalm 29. Talk about the power of God's word. It's all over that psalm. You may want to turn to it, but it speaks there in verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars. Yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness, and so on. It's, it's powerful. It is not only living, but it is powerful. And the proof of its power is evidenced in its impact upon humble hearts, especially humble hearts. In Jeremiah 23, now verse 29 will be known to many of you, but I want you to see it in its context of the previous verse. Jeremiah 23 You'll know where it says in verse 29, Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord, and like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? There's power there. That would be enough to make the point. But the previous verse, verse 28 of Jeremiah 23, The prophet that hath a dream, let him tell a dream. And he that hath my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? What is the chaff to the wheat? In other words, what? How can you compare some dream with the Word of God? My Word is like a fire. It's like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. The Word of God. That's how it is described. Powerful. It is powerful. But what does it do then? What does it do? Well, first of all, it saves sinners. Are you saved? Why? You heard the word. You heard the word of God. This was Paul's hope as he went about traveling from place to place, beaten and his life in danger almost daily. It was, as I disseminate this powerful word, what is it? It's the power of God unto salvation to them that believe. Romans 1. So our confession of faith says in chapter 14, first paragraph, the grace of faith whereby the elect are enabled to believe to the saving of their souls is the work of the Spirit of Christ in their hearts and is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. Ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the Word. 
So, so why do we go on Saturdays and preach? Why do others preach? Why do you evangelize? Why go to the boys' home? Why go to the neighborhood Bible club? Why, why engage in any form of evangelism you do privately as part of an, a branch of the work of this church? Why? And what do you want to do? You want to get that word in. Give the word. Constantly give the word. It is that that makes the difference. It is ordinarily wrought. That is, the grace of faith is ordinarily wrought by the ministry of the word. In the same chapter, the second paragraph, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word. and goes on to say, the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. How do we know how we're justified? How do we know we can be and will experience sanctification? How do we know we possess eternal life and will do into eternity? By the Word. (laughs) Take the Word out of your life. Take all your knowledge of the Word out of your life. Try to be you without all that you know and all that you're exposed to concerning the Word. You're not you. Your life has been shaped. The vast majority here this morning, you have been shaped by this Word. It has transformed your life. It has given you a new heart, guided you through your life, given you comfort and counsel and guidance and instruction and helped you more times than you can count. It is powerful. Your testimony to it. Maybe you don't believe here this morning. Maybe you're not saved. What do you need? What do you need? I, want, I, I so badly want to be saved. I want to be saved. So, so preacher, what should I do? More of the word. <laughs> Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. More of the word. Read more of the word. Read it on your knees. Read it prayerfully. Listen to the word. Be at every service. Constantly expose yourself to the word. More of the word. Saving sinners. That's what it is. It's like it's like a well, this that you come and you you drink from. Thirsty sinners without life, without hope, without salvation, they come here and if they if God works in them and they are reading it, they are reading it and thinking, Really? Is that what it says? You mean I don't have to impress God? No, because you can't. <laughs> I mean, you do have to impress God, but not, you can't do it. So another one did it. And you receive, and you have given to you and credit to you His work, His successful work, when you believe in Him. So what does He want me to do? What does He want me to do? If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Just come and drink of him. Receive him. Put your whole dependence upon him. Well, well do, I need to, do I need to add anything? Do I, do, I, do I believe and then make sure that I join a church and read my Bible and pray? Well, sure, but, but don't think that that's adding anything to your salvation. When you come and you take him and you seize upon Christ as a full gift, 
all of salvation is wrapped up in one package which you receive by faith alone and all you need to be accepted before God is in Him. It's all Jesus Christ. And that's what the Word reveals. So you young people, make sure that you've received it. Make sure that you know it. Make sure you're trusting and depending on it. Don't, don't be negligent of it. You need eternal life. Jesus Christ is the source of that life. You come to Him through the Word. You believe in Him by what He has revealed in His Word, and He will save your soul. So it saves sinners. It sanctifies saints. Thankfully. <laughs> so, child of God, you're battling with sin. And you're going to always be battling with sin. Just, just kind of realize that that is your future. You're in warfare. And while you're in this world, on this earth, there will be no reprieve from the warfare. The trinity of evil that you face, the world, the flesh, and the devil, never takes vacation, never gives you a break, never comes up with a peace treaty and says, let us leave it for a while. It will assault you every day. And sometimes more than others, you're going to feel it and you're going to be absolutely devastated by the fact that you aren't making as much progress as you wish you were. In fact, you may have been brought yourself to believe that you've gained a great victory at some point and you're enjoying that victory for a period of time and now you begin to believe that you're in a permanent place of spiritual victory. And then you fall flat on your face. I was just going over this recently with Abraham and his, his word in Egypt concerning Sarah. She's my sister, saving his own skin. And then, like, I don't know, two or three decades pass. Surely he's got victory over that. Like, no longer is he thinking that way. There's no possible way Abraham could make the same mistake again, sin in the same way. I mean, he's, he's, he's not done this in decades. But, lo and behold, comes the Girar, there before Abimelech. She's my sister. You know, like, really? That's you, and that's me. So what is her hope? Drink deeply every day. The prayer of Jesus, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That we're changed from glory into glory as by the Spirit of God as He opens up this Word. We, we, we look at it as a mirror. It transforms us. It changes us. Believer, if you want victory, you will never have it unless you are in this Word. It is living. It is powerful. It saves and it sanctifies. It also, it also suppresses Satan. It suppresses Satan. I won't elaborate on this too much, but you think of how the Word is the weapon against the enemy. And there are other verses I could use, even in Revelation, but Second Thessalonians is the one that comes to mind when it speaks of Antichrist. And the exposure of Antichrist in this world, referred to in verse 8 of Second Thessalonians 2, is that wicked. When that wicked is revealed, whom the Lord shall consume 
with the spread of his mouth. His word, destroyed by his word. So, we come then, thirdly, to the cutting precision of God's word. The cutting precision of it. Because it's not just powerful, but it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So we might say first, it is unlike anything else in its sharpness. Unlike anything else in its sharpness. When the text speaks of it being sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let me just read this so I make sure I'm clear. It does not refer to its ability to separate aspects of man being prized apart. It's not prizing man apart. But the word has the ability to dissect a unit into parts. In this context... Soul is the same as spirit. Thoughts are the same as intents. And so the word is, is getting into the innermost being of man. The thoughts and intents, the inner being, cannot run from the word. In fact, that's where we feel it most. Now, society sometimes can take elements from the word and then, let's say, incorporate it into their legal system. And then we feel the external force of that word, thou shalt not kill. You're going to murder, you're going to feel the external force of that in the law, at least I hope so, in which you are in court before the judge and imprisoned, maybe even sentenced to death. You'll feel the external force of it. But what the apostles deal with here is how it goes to the inner man. The power of the word to address the inner man and you see this in various experiences. For example, the two on the road to Emmaus. What the, how do they explain their experience being confronted by the Scripture that Jesus is speaking to them? Did not our heart burn within us as He taught with us by the way and while He opened to us the Scriptures? Our heart burned. It was doing something in us. These were not like the words of men. Something was going on in us as he spoke and opened the scriptures. Think of how it's described, how the result of Peter's preaching is described in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. When they heard this, the multitude, that is, were pricked in their heart. Pricked in their heart. Like stabbed into their animal's being. The force of the language is more graphic and more powerful than the piercing of the physical body of the Son of God. The Word penetrates more deeply than even a physical nail can in the body. It's doing something in us. And they are pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? So it's unlike anything else in its sharpness. Piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. It gets into the inner man. Soul, spirit, whole inner man is addressed. The joints and marrow, the inner part, it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. 
however you parse it, it is able to address every inner part of man. You feel it within your soul. But also, it's unlike anything else, and it's searching. Not just its sharpness, but it's searching. Because verse 13 follows, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So you have God's Word, and in connection with His Word is the fact that He sees all things. He knows all things. Now, why is that important? Behind the Word that is addressed to you is a God who sees either your obedience to it or your disobedience of it. The Word can get to the core of your being and you can feel it. And you can sense it addressing sin and unbelief and whatever it might be. You can feel it piercing there. But you can, you can resist it, kick against it, argue out of it, ignore it, silence it, quieten it, Paul speaks to Timothy of those who sear their conscience. It's like they take a hot iron and they sear it so that it becomes numb. It doesn't feel the Word anymore. You can do that. But what? Because these Jews, they, they could feel the quickening influence of the Word, see it pressing in upon their hearts and their souls, and they're sensing its attack upon and assault upon their conscience. And he is letting them know if you're meeting this with disobedience and unbelief, God knows. You're not fooling him. He is fully aware of your response to the word. So, in one sense, we might say, and it's searching, there's a consolation to those who obey it. A consolation. Because none of us fully obey. But, by His grace, we do try. Right? Don't we? I mean, at least we try to get into a rhythm of obedience and being sensitive and hearing and responding. Don't we? We want that. Now, we see our shortcomings. The tender heart, the humble soul, feels and senses and is aware of your shortcomings. And you feel, I am so much of a sinner. And I, I'm trying and I'm desiring and I'm longing and all oh, that I would be changed and transformed and be what the Lord would have me to be. And it could be depressing. If you thought that all God sees is your failure, but He also sees the heart. Like a child trying to walk for the first time and keeps trying, though keeps stumbling. The effort of getting up and keep going forward and doing the right thing 
God sees the spiritual equivalent of that. He sees the heart cry. He hears the prayer. He, he, he notices the longing. To be pure. To be holy. To be like Jesus. All things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. I want you to think of that first positively. For you sincere believers here in this congregation, he sees it. He sees that battle every day to get up and be faithful. He sees it. He sees you by his grace depending on him. That's consolation. But there is, of course, conviction. Because he sees the disobedience as well. David, David tried to carry on his life having committed adultery and orchestrated the murder of Uriah. He, he, he tried. He tried. He tried in the outward to govern his life and keep it all in order and do the kingly things he was meant to do. But when God began to pierce his heart, when he heard that word, thou art the man, and his soul was turned, the soil of his heart was flipped over. What does he say? Psalm 51. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. If it's not there, it doesn't matter. Even if no one knows about it, it doesn't matter. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it. So he sees you. He sees you. He sees you in your unbelief. And here's where I want to end, because I think it's right for me to end with an application to those of you that are still in unbelief, because really that's the context of Hebrews. The whole driving force of this is to those that are not believing. They are at least manifesting dangerously, walking away. And there could be some of you thinking the same thing. Departing Christ. Turn to Luke 13. Just as we close here. The time is almost gone, but the opening verses of Luke 13. I want you to see how Christ turns the searchlight of his word to the particular circumstances and helps people to think rightly about themselves rather than others. Verse 1, There were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, 
Suppose ye, this is what you're thinking, he's getting into the thought, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. Is that what you're thinking? Is that how you're thinking? Must be some judgment from God upon them. Turns it. I tell you nay, but except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Verse 4, Or those eighteen upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Is that how you're thinking? Is that your response to it? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. He spake also this parable. This is relevant. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit in this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. The Lord, the Lord doesn't let that crowd who are thinking this way Remain. He wants them to see and feel the impact of his word in specific ways. Verse 7, he is dealing with the patience, that they had received much patience. Three years I've been seeking fruit. Three years looking for obedient response to the word. That's, that's what's going on here. Three years looking for obedient response to the word. Verse 8, the patience continues. He answering and said unto him, Let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. Again, looking for patience. Just let it alone. Will there be obedient response to the word? Will these people realize that God has visited them and is giving the word that is as authoritative as the voice that thundered from Sinai? And will they respond? There comes a time, everyone here needs to know, there comes a time where that patience ends. Verse 9, if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. If you don't obey his word, you will be cut down. You will be lost. There's nothing wrong with the word. To those who hear it, receive it, embrace it, love it, it is a savor of life unto life. We love it, and we want more of it. To those who reject it, hate it, despise it, ignore it, will not submit to it. Those who say that I am going to delay it, there is no, de there is no delay. It's just disobedience. I want you to know that. There's no such thing as delay. It is disobedience. So when you say, I'm just waiting, no, you're disobeying. And at some point you'll be cut down. Repent. Repent and believe the gospel. If you do nothing else today, make sure you get yourself to the cross. Make sure you see the Lamb of God made flesh there, dying for sinners, perishing, suffering, enduring all the wrath you deserve for your sin. And you lay hold upon him by faith and you say, here is life. It's like you're holding on to the very feet of the crucified Savior, begging for life. There's the blood from his body 
flows. There's the source of life. There's the answer for your sin. Believe it. Receive it. And never let go of it. Let's bow together in prayer. know in these moments you are naked before him is God you can't hide your unbelief in these moments he sees it you can try to negotiate and mask But all he sees is disobedience. Surrender your heart. Dear young person, older person, long-term attendee, visitor, Lord, we pray, help us to value your word above life itself, to consider it more than our necessary food, Grant that we would feel its power every day and that your church would be sanctified by its influence, made more like unto the Lord Jesus. And grant that your kingdom would be extended. Your kingdom would come, your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Lord, as you speak to this generation through your living, powerful word, May it lead men and women and boys and girls to repentance. Hear prayer. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen.